This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland Roshi, Sitting in the Fire 3, was given at the Fresh Breeze Meditation Retreat at the Sangre de Cristo Center in Tezuka, New Mexico, on July 8, 2011. So good evening. <laughs> what is happening? The talk shall be Yeah. The talk shall be limited as to time and space. Um, okay, so tonight I wanted to pull back the view a little bit and talk about why it is we do this practice, what it is we're doing, and why we do it, and how we do it. And I wanted to begin um, with a, a specific, and forgive me for going over ground that we've already gone over, but um, I've had a feeling that some, some things aren't totally clear and they're really important. So one more time around on um, neither for nor against. <laughs> one last time around on that. Um, what I want to make really clear is that a practice of coming to everything with an attitude of neither for nor against including toward ourselves, is not um, an attitude that leads to whatever, you know, passivity or indifference or a kind of nihilism. On the contrary, what neither for nor against does is that it deprives us in a very dangerous way of all of our distancing mechanisms from things, all of our habitual ways of putting some space between us and the world through opinion and judgment and story, uh, preconceived idea, and um, through our defenses. So actually, the practice of neither for nor against is a way of stripping ourselves naked so that we go naked to meet the world. And in doing that, we, instead of telling the world what it's about or trying to discover what the meaning of the world is for us, we simply listen to what the world has to say. We simply listen to what our inner lives have to say about um, themselves. So there's, a, there's an old Theravadan definition of mindfulness that I really like a lot, which is allowing things to speak for themselves without first interrupting. And this is a practice of not interrupting. This is a practice of listening and letting things speak for themselves, which is um, gloriously dangerous, gloriously risky because we're in danger of hearing things that subvert our habitual and usual ways of seeing and understanding and experiencing things. So the kind of neutrality that's implied in neither for nor against is um, actually something that is open-minded and interested and curious about the way things are rather than loading up the situation with um, prejudgment. Um, it's a way of meeting things 
Buddha nature to Buddha nature with nothing intervening. That's quite beautiful, quite risky, um, can be scary, but is um, the way that leads to happiness as far as um, this way understands what happiness might be. One of the things that it can show us if we do the practice for a while is how much we're substituting what we think about things, our opinions about things, and our um, emotional reactions to things for what's actually happening. So we, we're not dealing directly with what's happening. We've substituted, we've put in between us our own um, habits of heart and mind, and then we're in relationship with that. So we kind of never get outside ourselves into any sense of the true world because we're just in relationship with our own opinions about things. Um, One of the things that that for some reason has been particularly vivid to me uh, during this retreat is how often people say, um, I don't like the koans, or I don't like this koan, or this koan makes me angry, or this koan makes me anxious, or um, this koan bores me, um, whatever it is. And um, what I would like to ask of you humbly is, it's certainly true that the koan way is not for everybody, and maybe not even for most people. But don't um, reject it until you've, you've done some uh, neither for nor against with it. Try that, and if you still really don't like it, okay. But try that, because if we say, I don't like the koans, or I don't like this koan, or this koan um, makes me anxious, that's not neither for nor against. That's, that's a kind of... Um, Judgment and distancing about the possibility of a relationship with the koan. It's very different to say, this koan makes me angry, or uh, this koan evokes anger in me. Do you see? That's a very crucial, subtle difference. If you hear it, if you understand it as, this koan evokes anger in me, there's a next question, which is, oh, Why should that be? (laughs) What is it here that's evoking anger in me? This koan evokes anxiety in me. What's that about? Why is that happening? So it keeps things moving and open, and it keeps possibility of something happening alive. Um, Certainly the koan tradition, like any tradition, has a lot of deficiencies, and it's easy to uh, rattle them off, like... You know, the the for the most part absence of women would be, from my perspective, rather a large deficiency. Um, the for the most part absence of koans about householders' lives, um, about sex, about uh, kinds of relationships other than among monastics together. All of those are deficiencies, and I don't um, I don't minimize that, but. At the same time, one of the particular gifts of the koans as a spiritual practice is exactly their apparent otherness, their foreignness. They're not coming 
out of what we already know. They're coming from a really different place. And some of that is the cultural stuff and the time stuff. We're talking about things that are a thousand years old. And some of it is that they're really coming to us from the vastness. They're really messenger birds from the territory outside of what we habitually know. And that's tremendously valuable. Think about the difference between um, interviewing yourself and being interviewed by a very wise stranger. <laughs> so, so Jane, what's it like to be the um, leading RBI batter in the um, National Softball League? Well, Jane, it's great. <laughs> you know, or, um, well, Jane, you really blew it again, didn't you? Really messed up on that. Yes, yes, Jane, I did. I really screwed up and I'm hopeless. I mean, you know, so like that's kind of like an interview in the territory of what we already know. But a wise stranger comes and asks really unexpected questions, questions that really startle us and knock us out of our habitual ways of doing things. And that can be tremendously valuable. So if it helps, you know, maybe you could, um, you could think about it a little bit like that. Okay. Public service announcement over. <laughs> Um, this kind of work, the, this, this kind of work that neither for nor against is an example of, is really important to our way, but it is not the sum total of it by any means at all. Um, it's not the end of our way. It's not to get really good at um, deconstructing our habits of mind and heart. Uh, all of those kinds of deconstructive and inquiring activities are uh, forms of purification. We are clearing out the underbrush. We are getting rid of the stuff that's in the way. But we're doing that in the service of something much, much, much bigger. It's really important. It's crucial. In fact, you can't get to the much bigger thing so well without that kind of purification. But it isn't the end that we're going for. And also I want to say that, that um, as we do this kind of purification, and I know from, from speaking with you that a lot of people feel like there is some of that happening, purification isn't only a matter of deconstruction. It isn't only a matter of getting rid of what is in the way or what is causing difficulty, causing obstruction. Another way to hold purification is that it is a making whole what has been partial. So, if part of it is a stripping away of what needs to be stripped away, part of it is also an inclusion of what needs to be included those things that we push into what in other wisdom traditions is called the shadow, right? The stuff that we don't want to deal with, the stuff we don't want to acknowledge about ourselves, the stuff that's, that's difficult and painful. Purification is also the inclusion of that, the welcoming of that into our sense of, um, of who we are as a whole being. Um, Okay, so if, if our work was only about even these two kinds of purification toward the, um, the making of a, of a um, cleaner, <laughs> wholer self, 
I would give you a refund and send you home because um, it's really about something much larger than that. When you clear away, when you um, include what has been exiled from yourself, what's left on the bare ground on which you're standing is not a kind of nihilistic nothingness. We're not just paring things down to nothing to get to the smallest um, possible thing in the world. What is left on that bare ground as we stand there looks suspiciously like a kind of unconditioned, unshakable love. And that's the point. To be able to stand on the bare ground and know that there is, that we have within us the possibility for unconditioned, unlimited, unshakable love, um, which is to say a love that arises spontaneously, that isn't dependent on the right causes and conditions, and that isn't shaken by anything we experience. One of the beauties of neither for nor against and practices like that is that it can put us in a state of being where nothing can threaten that love. Nothing can shake that. There is nothing that can make us wonder about the rightness of that. Um, That love needs no reinforcement. That love needs nothing in particular to persist except that we allow it to Um, and it will continue to come forth by itself and to persist by itself if we just let it so how do we get from purification to an unconditional unshakable love that's what I want to talk about tonight how do we make that the ground underneath our feet all the time. Let's bring in um, what the tradition thinks we're doing here from from the perspective of this ancient, strange, some, somewhat other way. What's the point? I was um, thinking hard about this and trying to really distill it down to what it seems to me is the essence. And this is about as, as distilled as I can get. The first thing that this practice is for is to come closer to what's actually true. And that might seem kind of um, unexciting and dry, but it's really the wellspring of everything. The more we can get intimate with reality, you know, as much as it is possible to know what reality is, the more we can get intimate with what is true, the better things are for us and for the world around us. So 
we do the kind of deconstructive work inherent in neither for nor against because it clears away what is between us and the world. It allows us to get closer in to the world, to rub up against it, to kind of meet chest to chest with the world, heart to heart with the world, and to see what's um, more, to see more closely what's actually there or what's actually at least likely to be there. So that's one movement of um, closer to what's true. The other and equally important movement, um, and you'll notice that we often talk about things in sort of facing in two directions. So we have the direction into the world and we have the direction into the vastness. That's the other and equally important, getting closer to what's true. Um, One of the greatest gifts, one of the irreplaceable gifts of this tradition is that it, it, if we take it seriously, if we bring our sincerity and our persistence, our insane persistence to it, we can have a direct experience of the true nature of things, of the vastness itself. We can know that for ourselves. That's an incredible gift. Once given can never be taken away. Once given can never be damaged or nicked um, or, or modified or doubted. It's so real and so vivid. So um, I'm a little queasy about saying the true nature of things because then we tend to think of that experience of the vastness as being like the true world that's somehow behind this world, which is the false world. So let me say instead that it allows us to see the full nature of things. It allows us to add an experience of the radiant, eternal, unchanging nature of everything to our perception of the rising and falling, the ephemeral nature of everything. And it's when we include those two views that we have a full view of the nature of things. So we come closer to the world, we come closer to the vastness, and we bring those two things together and see that they are really a one thing. Incomparable gift. The second thing I think the tradition thinks that this is for is for us to live our human lives to the fullest. You know, I've often said, because I'm trying to push against a certain attitude in contemporary spiritual traditions, that the koan way loves being human. The koan way sees it as a great gift. The koan way says you've got this fantastic red, bloody, beating heart. You've got this brilliant intelligence. You've got these bodies that are so capable. You've got this creativity. You've got uh, an ability to connect with and work with each other and love each other. And all of that is true in addition to everything we were talking about last night that is painful and difficult. So 
um, the gift we can give to the world is to use all of those capacities, all of those faculties, all of those gifts of our humanity for the benefit of the world. We just um, figure out how to do the best we can and we give it away. And in, um, in, doing, in doing that, we do that by... Um, really coming to feel for ourselves a sense of freedom that's so big in this tradition. Um, how, are we, how can we get free and what does being free make possible? How can we be spontaneous, which is based on the notion that being human is fundamentally a good thing. And if we can clear stuff out of the way and get down to that ground of love, what comes spontaneously and naturally out of that ground, up through our feet, through our bodies, out our hands, out our mouths, um, will be a good thing. Maybe not always right, but a good thing, a good try anyway. Um, and so we are enabled to the extent that it's possible to to be helpful in co-creating the world there is a view that the world is being created every moment by all of us and everything else that's participating in it and this way is a way of enabling us to give the most and the best we can to that co-creation if there is pain, if we don't like the way things are, the invitation is get in there and help make it different. You can do this, and we can do this together. And one of the ways we can do this together is the third thing that I think this practice thinks it's for. That's the best way to say it, what this practice thinks it's for. And that is to support and to encourage and to teach us how to have a deep relatedness with each other and with other beings and with everything that is alive in the world. And it is out of that deep relatedness that um, the most helpful, the most beneficial kind of co-creation can happen. So seeing things more fully and truly by becoming more intimate with the world by knowing, coming to experience and know the vastness and seeing those two things together as the fullness of life. Becoming more and more helpful in co-creating the world we want to live in and deepening always our relatedness to each other and to everything else as well. And all of this, all of these um, aspirations, all of these potential gifts are grounded in this unconditional, unshakable, and unsentimental love. Do you understand the unsentimental part? No. It's not about just feeling nice. It's, um, it's about turning what Simone Weil called a just and loving gaze 
on things. That's neither for nor against, just and loving. Um, With a clear eye and an open heart. Not nice, necessarily. Not simply because it feels good. Not simply because it's good for us personally. But because it feels like the truest thing. To love in that way, to experience things in that way, is the truest thing we can do. Not the nicest thing, not the happiest thing, not the thing that makes us feel the best, but the truest thing. And may that make us feel the best. So part of that unsentimentality is also that we have to be willing to let our hearts be broken. With unbroken hearts, we are not awakened. With unbroken hearts, we remain potential, ripe, you know, not, not yet ripe, still kind of shiny and hard. We have to, to get ripe, we have to break. We have to be willing to feel um, the sorrow of things, the poignancy of things, the tenderness of things, to let ourselves be marked by that. And I think also we have to be willing, as much as we are willing to feel that, to let our hearts be broken, we also have to be willing to surrender to a sense of awe and wonder about the miraculous nature of the world. And we cannot give that up. We cannot turn away from that. We cannot let... our sense of the difficulty of things cause us to turn away from the fundamental miraculousness of life and the world and um, ourselves, each other. We have to continually open to that sense of awe and wonder. Okay. How do we do this? How much time? I have um, 15 minutes left. <laughs> okay. Let's begin with what, what is at the center. Um, those of us who are in Santa Fe here together have, have talked in the past about um, at the center of things there is a well. And um, we we hope through our practice clear a path to the well and we sit down next to it and when we look inside the well we realize that we can never see the bottom of it and that well is the fundamental mystery of things there is a mystery we cannot crack we cannot know it is our nature not to know it and that's at the center And a lot of what we do, a lot of our time is spent denying the fact of that unseeable to the bottom of well at the very center of things. I think some of the things we talked about last night were when we get close to that well and we bounce off of it because it's frightening to think that, that at the center of things is what we can't know. 
So um, it's already there. We don't need to do anything about that. <laughs> it is provided for us. And our job is really just to get comfortable living next to that well, peering into that well, and finding it beautiful, even as we know we can never see to the bottom of it. More recently, we've been talking about uh, um, putting something else at the center of things. If that is what is given to us at the center, there's also something we put at the center. And we've been talking about um, bodhicitta, and the Bodhisattva's vow. Um, Bodhicitta is the desire for awakening so that we can help in the awakening of all beings. And that's essentially what the Bodhisattva's vow is. And we've talked about how if we put that, if we choose to put that at the center of our lives, it makes it almost impossible to put any other version of ourselves at the center, any other kind of um, way we identify, you know, um, any other kind of collection of causes and conditions, any other kind of um, definition of ourselves at the center, because the space is taken up by our bodhicitta, by our, our, our yearning, our longing for awakening for ourselves and everyone. And one of the things I want to suggest is that now the center is getting crowded. We've got two things at the center. We've got this well, and we've got our bodhicitta. And I don't think they're different. I think, again, they are two faces of the same thing. That that, um, when we look out the gate toward the vastness, that appears in us as not knowing as a kind of awe and trembling at the mystery, at the heart of things. And when we look through the gate that leads to the world, that appears as bodhicitta, as our desire for um, awakening for the benefit of all beings. And I see them as um, one and the same, just different views on the same thing. Having those two things at the, at the center leads to a kind of steadiness and a kind of courage that are really important. And again, when we have that steadiness and courage, there's nothing we need to turn away from. There is nothing we need to defend against because there is nothing that can threaten what we know for ourselves. If we know the vastness for ourselves, if we know the full nature of things, if we know that the thing that matters most to us in the world is our own bodhicitta, our own bodhisattva's vow, nothing can threaten that. Nothing can, nothing needs to be defended against. Everything can be included. Everything can be attended to. Nothing can threaten what you've experienced for yourself, and nothing can threaten what you have come to feel for others, which is the Bodhisattva's vow. Nothing can threaten what you have come to feel for others. Once you have felt that unshakable, unsentimental, 
unconditioned love, nothing can change that. What is not at the center is uh, an image of self-perfection or even self-improvement or even wonderful virtues like wisdom or compassion. And the reason those things cannot be at the center is because our ideas of self-perfection, self-improvement, even our ideas of wisdom and compassion are limited because they, as we begin, they come out of what we already know. That's all they can, that's all we have. That's all they can come out of. So we are limiting ourselves from the beginning. We are limiting our aspiration to what we already know. If we think of things like self-improvement, wisdom, self-perfection, you, um, by limiting yourself to what you already know, you are closing yourself off to what is autonomous in this process, what has nothing to do with you, what comes like the koans out of the vastness to get you if you make yourself fetchable, what rises out of that well at the center of things, what the, what the bodhisattva's vow makes possible completely by surprise, completely autonomously, because you couldn't have planned it. <laughs> you can't make it happen. It's not in your control. And it's wild. It is wild. It is untamed. And to put any of those other things at the center is to domesticate the journey. Right? I'm going to make myself better. That is, I'm going to make myself even wiser, more compassionate. All of that stuff is domesticating the journey before you even start rather than allowing the journey to undomesticate you. And that's what the journey is for, to undomesticate you. I want to talk just a little bit more about uh, bodhicitta. In one of the old texts, there's, it's called The Earth Which Supports Everything Unconditionally and The Mountain Which Towers Impartially Over Everything. And it occurs to me that um, that's a beautiful kind of way to think about it because in the earth which supports everything unconditionally, we have something to stand on. We have something that is going to support us no matter what we're doing. And we have something to rest on. We have something to lie down on when we need to lie down. We can lie down on that earth of bodhicitta. And in a mountain which towers impartially over everything, we have um, a way to make choices. We have a way to remember that everything is Tathagata. Everything has Buddha nature. And everything's Buddha nature is the most important thing about it. And that mountain towering impartially over everything reminds us to meet each thing like that. Each thing with our own impartiality, with our own neither for nor against. 
and so that we can experience its Tathagata. And it is in that impartiality that the ability to make decisions that might be helpful, might be beneficial, can come. Um, I've spoken a couple of times over the last couple of nights about our relationship to our passion and our passions and that we're talking about a way in which it's not necessary to domesticate our passions but it is necessary to come into a good relationship with them and one of the ways to do that is to um, throw them joyfully and willy-nilly at our bodhicitta and let them serve that I was thinking about this because I was looking at at, um, in in the old text the ways the bodhicitta is talked about and it's spoken about as a longing for awakening a desire for awakening cherishing an intense desire for awakening an aspiration towards awakening I mean, does this sound like, you know, detachment and and, uh, equanimity? No, I mean, it's, there's, you know there's there's a real about this and and. All of our passion, all of our caring, all of the things that we feel deeply about can just pour into that longing for awakening, cherishing an intense desire for awakening. Um, Okay, the last thing I want to say, because I would love to hear your comments and questions as well, is about that kalpa fire, the kalpa ending fire we've been talking about. And how does all of this look in the light of that kalpa fire? As we get to see the full nature of things, one of the things that becomes apparent is that everything is already aglow with that fire. That's not something in the far distance. It's, it's already here. And things already... Um, flicker in its light. It's one of the things that you can't um, you can't turn your back on. So, if that's the case, if everything is already lit in some way by the kalpa ending fire, what do they look like lit by that fire? If you have a bodhisattva's heart. They look poignant and tender and um, so very ephemeral and because so very ephemeral, so very precious. They look brave. They come into existence anyway, knowing that, that, that the nature of coming into existence is that they will fall out of existence and yet they do it. We do it. Everything does it. There's a bravery and a persistence about manifestation, about life. In the face of annihilation, we keep sprouting. It's as if we so yearn to take form together, even in these circumstances, even in this wounded, blasted, blighted world. We so yearn to come into form together and to find out what's possible when we have hands and feet and minds and hearts and skin and imagination and creativity. We yearn to know what might be possible. And there's such 
exuberance once we've come into that form, this riot of ways of being manifest in this form world is really something. So, in the light of the Kalpa fire, I want to suggest that there is no such thing as nihilism, that there's no such thing as passivity, that there's only everything so vivid and alive in that fire. And, um, of course, there's a koan for that, which many of you know. Um, Two old friends who'd been traveling around a lot together were on the road once again on pilgrimage. And one of them, Shanshan, was mending his clothes, mending the tears in his clothes with a needle and thread. And his um, buddy, Dungshan, asked him, what, what you doing? And Shanshan said, mending. Probably knowing that um, it wasn't as simple a question. And so Dungshan asked innocently, how are you mending? And Shanshan, probably with some um, trepidation, said, one stitch is like the next. Okay, there's a nice view of equanimity, of, of you know, one foot after the other, of, of living life, you know, purposefully and mindfully and with great um, awareness and attention. One stitch is like the next. I can, I can make my stitches even and beautiful because I'm really paying attention. And then Dungshan says... We've been traveling together for 20 years now, and you can still say such a thing? How could this be? And Shan Shan said, okay, how do you mend? And Dung Shan says, as if the whole earth were spewing flames. How do you mend? How do you sleep? How do you eat? How do you walk around? How do you talk with each other? How do you raise the children? How do you make art? How do you protest injustice as if the whole earth were spewing flames? But that light, that light of the Kalpa ending fire, isn't the only light in our world. It isn't the only light visible to us. There's another kind of light, and that is the radiance from that um, unchanging aspect of things from that vast, empty aspect of things. So, again, to use an image we've used in the past, what are the eyes of the Bodhisattva like? One eye sees everything in the flickering light of the Kalpa ending fire and, and um, her heart is moved by the poignancy of that. And the other eye sees that everything before any of this is lit from within. Everything is already lit from within. And the Bodhisattva sees that and her heart opens. Everything we encounter, we ourselves, are simultaneously lit from within through an autonomous, wild, impersonal, thank heavens, process. And we are visible in the flickering light of the kalpa ending fire. So that's how crazy this way is. 
everything we see like that, everything we encounter, everything that happens, every person, every being, everything, every circumstance, nothing left out, we see with those two lights shining simultaneously. Um, I will own that this is not easy, um, but I will also suggest that it's kind of worth it. And um, there is a quality of irrevocability about it. I was thinking about, you know, that, that old Buddhist idea of the non-returner, that you get to a certain point in your practice and the kind of the promises, you won't come back, you won't be reborn again, you're just off the wheel. Well, I was thinking that our way puts a different spin on the non-returner, that it's not a matter of getting off the wheel and getting out of samsara. But there comes a point, if we are crazy enough to persist, if we allow ourselves to care enough to persist, if we allow our deepest yearning and our longing to be felt, and to be worked with, to be manifest. If we do all of that, at a certain point, we can't return either. We can't return to the way things were. We can't return to the old life. We're sunk. We're doomed. There's a, there's a threshold you go across after which, oh well, <laughs> there's, you know, there's only one way, and that's, and that's to keep going forward. Um, we talk among ourselves about those moments when we try to step briefly back over the threshold and um, deal with an uncomfortable situation or exhaustion in some of the old ways, and it just doesn't work anymore. <laughs> you know, Our old obsessions, our old coping mechanisms, our old strategies just don't work anymore. And we can't turn off the view of the kalpa ending firelight and the light from within everything. Maybe, maybe you could turn it off, but it would be really, really painful and you'd have to exercise a lot of denial or drink a lot of alcohol or something, you know, to, to turn that back off once it's been turned on. Um, and the last thing I want to say is that when we talk about this kalpa ending fire, we can't know what the future is going to be. That's part of that well that we can't see to the bottom of in the center of things. So what this way brings us back to over and over and over again is what's true now. What can we do now? What do we know now? What can we experience now? It keeps bringing us right back into this moment because this is the moment we have. This is the vivid, alive moment that we have. And this is where we need to be pouring our passion, pouring our energy, pouring our love into this moment. And if we do that, the future will take care of itself. And after a while of doing that, I believe you'll discover that, um, that that's enough, that you don't need to know any more than that. You don't need to be doing any more than that, that that makes a full and a complete life with nothing left out.
So a part of this that's so important is the, the deepening of our relationship with each other. And it's so important that I want to save it um, for tomorrow night so that we can, we can really dive into it. And, um, and I will stop here um, and ask how it seems to you this way that I'm describing. How do you, how do you relate to it? Um, what do you have to add? What would you say about it? These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.